0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we? Merry Christmas. This is the week, right? This is the week. Uh, So before we get going, um, we have a slide up on the screen, I think, for Launchpad volunteers needed. So we are in need, as you know, especially as December, November, December hit, things kind of dwindle a bit as far as uh, people that can serve. And then we need a lot of people starting in January, of course. So we want to invite you to serve in that way. If you want to get more information on that, you can go to our website. There's a way to apply for that. And uh, you'll notice on the screen here it says 9.15 service and 11, that's going to change January 2nd. We're moving 9.15 service to 9.30, which doesn't affect you guys at all because y'all like to sleep in. So y'all like the 11 service. But if you do happen to go to that service, sometimes that will affect you. So 9.30 Go back to the usual time that we used to do a long time ago. That will start January 2nd. And then lastly, uh, Rick Erickson, who's been a, a teacher here, a class teacher here for many, many years, and he does an amazing presentation called The Star of Bethlehem every year, usually every year. And, uh, and so we're doing a streaming-only event of that tomorrow. Now, I don't have the exact time because we haven't announced it yet, but look on our, our church Facebook page, and we'll announce that tomorrow as to when that will take place also tomorrow. So look for a streaming event on the TBC Facebook page for Star of Bethlehem tomorrow. Now, um, we are in our fourth week of Advent, and today we're talking about love. And whenever we think of Advent... We normally think about the the first coming of Christ is how we normally think about it. But historically, the church focused on his first and his second coming at the time of Advent. They would spend the first two weeks of Advent focused on the second coming of Christ, and this would be a time of confession and repentance and praying for his return. But the last two weeks would be focused on his first coming. And so we've talked about these themes like hope and peace and joy, and today is about love, looking at 1 John chapter 4. So go ahead and turn to that section of scripture, 1 John chapter 4, and I want to give you some quick background of the book of 1 John. So why did John write this book? Well, if you're someone who struggles with just assurance of salvation, this is a great book to read and to understand, how do I know I'm really a Christ follower? John has some great thoughts on that in uh, this short book, 1 John. And, uh, and then secondly, as you look through the entire book, you'll see this question. How do our lives change once we surrender to Christ? Well, John touches on these big themes like we're, we're going to have true joy. So we're changed emotionally. We're going to um, hate sin and fight against it. So we're going to change morally. We're going to change theologically as we begin to believe the truth about Jesus. And then also socially as we begin to learn love others. And John shows us that in the the, the book of 1 John. And the reason why I love this book so much is because John does a great job at combining knowledge about Jesus with love for his people. Sometimes those things seem in conflict, don't they? Where the people who love knowledge just may have a harder time loving people, and the people who are really good at loving may find it difficult to really want to invest and learn knowledge. But John brings those things together as we look at just one chapter in this book. So look at uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And if, you're, if, you're an, if you love outlines, the outline is very simple. It's, it is doctrine matters, character matters, love matters. That's our outline for today. So 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3, where it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Now, so during Advent, of course, we celebrate Jesus coming in the flesh. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus came as fully God and fully man. But in the early days of the church, people were prone to many false teachings about Jesus. And these false teachings and beliefs centered on the incarnation. Now when he says the word spirit here in this this first few verses, he's not talking about like ghosts and those kind of things. He's talking about like false ideas. Behind every false idea or false teaching, there is a false spirit. And that's what John is addressing here. And I love how John makes clear that the responsibility for Testing these false spirits is, uh, is really the, the, should be the part of every Christian. It really belongs to every Christian to be someone that tests the spirits. This is not just scholars or church leaders or pastors that should be people that can discern truth from error. John is placing that responsibility, I think, on every believer. So John gives readers a test through which they can discern true and false teaching. He says, if someone affirms that Jesus came in the flesh, fully God and fully man, well, that's from God. If they don't affirm that truth, that reality, then they're not from God. You see, many in the ancient world believed that the spirit world was good and the physical world was evil. And the body was just seen as a prison from which we should try to escape. And many people try to to blend this thinking with Christian belief. And they thought, well, if the physical world is evil, well, then why would God come and take on human flesh if the physical world is considered inherently evil? I think a helpful explanation can be found in this book. I took my students to this book a couple years ago. It's it's really addressing ancient heresies. And this writer does a brilliant job of connecting ancient heresies to modern-day superheroes. Now, if you're a superhero nerd, which I am not, um, you will find an issue with his analogies. You'll, you'll pick it apart, I'm sure, but um, I'm just not that smart. I don't have the time for that. So I, I found a very, helpful, a very helpful read on how to explain the early church heresies many, many years ago. And he shows how in the early church, many believe false teachings about Jesus. And uh, so one chapter he does is on uh, Superman and the heresy of docetism. Now, the word docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. Now, if you know your superheroes, you know that Superman, he isn't truly human. He only appears to be. He's really from another planet altogether. And while on Earth, he lives this pretend life as Clark Kent. And when he's playing that part, he's, of course, clumsy. He's weak. He gets tired. He's sick. But the whole thing is just a big act. I mean, he looks human, but he's not truly human. Now, of course, this is not an exact parallel, but uh, many believe similar ideas about Jesus. They thought that he wasn't fully man. He just seemed that way. He was really just a spirit who only appeared to have a body, and he cast no shadow, and he left no footprints. What's interesting is that today, more people take issue with the deity of Jesus, but in that time, many took issue with his humanity, and they couldn't wrap their minds around how could God, why would God come and put on human flesh if we consider the physical world, the fleshy world, to be inherently sinful. It's really interesting. One of the first things that Satan attacked was the nature of the Incarnation the nature of Jesus coming in the flesh, and John is writing to address that. So over in verse 3, when John says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, well, to acknowledge Jesus means to confess him as the Christ who has come in the flesh. You know, many religions acknowledge that Jesus existed, but only Christianity confesses that he is fully God and fully man several months ago I was talking to a, a man that I know here in the area and he is of a, an entirely different religion and in our conversation he tried to tell me that even though I am of this different religion I still consider myself a Christian and I, I said hey I'm not seeing how those mesh together because your religion doesn't teach that Jesus Christ is truly God and so if you don't believe that basic tenet of the faith, you can't call yourself a Christian. We can't make this up as we go. And so any, any person, any, any idea that says Jesus isn't fully God or he isn't fully man, that, that, that is not considered an orthodox Christian belief. So false teachers either deny his deity or they begin to chip away at his humanity. And here's why this doctrine really matters. Because if Jesus came as a substitute in our place, then he needed to be fully human to take our place. But he also needed to be fully God because the this, this, this substitute had to be perfect. This is why it was so important that God come, God comes as fully God and fully man. Because anything different undermines the gospel entirely. So look with us at verse 4. Over in verses one to three, John addresses the false teachers, but now he is addressing the audience or those tempted to fall for their teaching. So throughout this letter, John refers to the readers as beloved or as little children. Now, this is not a demeaning statement, but this is showing, I think, how much he loves these people. So John refers to them, he, he, he says it over and over again in John in First John, beloved, or he calls them little children. And he says, you are from God because you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh. And he says, you have overcome them. So them means false teachers. He says, you have overcome the false teachers because the Holy Spirit indwells you and he is greater than the spirit of false teaching. You see, we never get to, we never get to pat ourselves on the back for our ability to discern truth from error. We can't walk around and lay claim to this special knowledge that we have in and of ourselves that helps us discern truth from falsehood. That, that credit only belongs to the Holy Spirit within us who's helping us do that discernment. He's giving us that ability. Now, some Christians, I think, try to do spiritual battle as individuals, they believe when it says, he who is in you means, well, it means he who's in me. But here's the, the reality. The word you in this passage it is a good Texas word. It's the word y'all. It's the, it's the plural you. And it's referring to the community of believers. So when he says, he who is in you, that means all of you as the community of believers. And we need community to be able to help, to help us. Discern truth from error. If you look over at verse 5, it talks about these false prophets that are speaking from the world to the world, and the world listens to them. So, big surprise that those that are from the world are going to speak to the world, and the world's going to hear and listen to them. And this should not surprise us, I don't think. I think sometimes Christians expect the world to adopt Christian viewpoints apart from Christ or they're going to somehow listen in such a way or believe certain things before they actually come to know Jesus, and that's just not the reality. Then over in verse 6, John says something that sounds really arrogant. He says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, if, if you or I said that, that would sound, I think, a bit arrogant, wouldn't it? Whoever knows God agrees with me. If you don't agree with me, then you must not be of God. So why does John get to say that? Well, he is one of the apostles, and he is writing with an authority that you and I don't possess. But it's not like he's just espousing his own ideas about God. He has submitted himself, surrendered himself to the teaching of Jesus, and he he has submitted himself to to the word of Christ, the word that Christ has spoken. And so I think he he has submitted himself and surrendered himself to the word that Christ has spoken. And I think there's this connection between God's word and God's people. God's people listen to his word. Jesus says over in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice. I like how John Stott says this. He says, still today, we can recognize God's word because God's people listen to it just as we can recognize God's people because they listen to God's word. There's a disconnect if someone says, I'm a Christian, but then they don't listen to what God's word says. If someone claims Christ, but they listen more to the world than to Jesus, then they can't truly claim Christ. You see, doctrine matters, but so does the character of the audience. So does the character of the listener. Now, you might be asking the question, now, what does all this have to do with love? Well, the answer is everything. Because Jesus, he he demonstrates his love by coming in the flesh. And we cannot fully know his love if we don't believe the doctrine that he came as fully God and fully man. And if we can't know his love, then how can we possibly be people who give that love to others. And so look with me down at at verse 7. Love matters. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, for whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, I don't have to tell you this; you know this to be true. Our world is obsessed with love. We just finished a 15-week series over in the high school group, the Outback, on Sunday mornings on relationships, and I could just tell that our high schoolers were just a little bit more tuned in than usual, because we all know that our world we're obsessed with this idea of love. We see it all; we see it everywhere. We see it all around us. And our culture is always proclaiming what they believe love to be as if they invented it. We hear the statement all the time, love is love. Well, that's not true. God is love. God, love comes from God. God gets to define what love is. And it's not something that he invented, but it is something that he has always been. God is love. People love to hijack that, that phrase, but what does it really mean? Well, Many years ago when I was in seminary, I was, I think, finishing up my last year of seminary, and one of the classes that we took, we had to go and shadow a hospital chaplain, I think up in the Dallas area, just for an afternoon, and just see how they do what they do in the hospital. And I remember being paired with these two different chaplains, and one, in our conversation, I could tell we we probably saw eye to eye more theologically. And then the other guy, I started to wonder, I'm not so sure that we see eye to eye theologically so much. And after um, I spent the day, half the day with them, we're doing a a debrief session and uh, I'm just hearing like why they do what they do. And the man that I probably didn't identify as much with theologically, he, he said, "I, I do what I do because I believe that, that God is love and love is God. And I, alarm bells went off and I went, that, that doesn't sound right. I don't remember reading that second statement in the Bible that, that love is God. And you see, this isn't like a math statement like two equals two, you know, flip it around and it means the exact same thing. We can't treat it like that. We can't say love is God because that would be replacing God with something else, and that's idolatry. So love cannot replace God. But when many of us hear the statement, God is love, we often think, well, of course God is love because he loves He loves me. And while that is true, His attribute of love didn't begin on our birthday. You see, if he's eternal and he is love, then he has always been love and he will always be love. It's true in the past, it's true in the present, and it will be true in the future. You see, we believe that God is one. There's one God, but there's three persons. There is Father, Son, and Spirit, And you see, perfect love has always existed within the Trinity and their relationship as the Trinity. And when God created mankind, the love that he has for us is simply an overflow of the love that already existed among the persons of the Trinity. You see, the ancients believed that God or the gods would be like spirit or light or immaterial, but they would never say God is love. Love. Because love requires persons. Love requires persons to be in relationship with one another. And this is how we can say God is love. And back then, they didn't see God that way. They didn't see a God, a real personal God in this way. And sometimes we don't see God that way. Or we we pit God's love against his other attributes, And so we say, well, God is love. If God is love, how can he be a God who is also angry, or how can God ever judge? C.H. Dodd says this It is true that the words God is love mean not that loving is only one of God's many activities, but rather all his activity is loving activity. And therefore, if he judges, he judges in love. If God is love, that doesn't mean that love is just an attribute on a checklist, but everything he says, everything he does is shot through with love. If he disciplines us, it's because he loves us. And he could do nothing without love. If you look down at verse seven once again, before John tells them to love one another. He reminds them how loved they are. He says, Beloved, let us love. So before he tells them they should love, he reminds them how loved they are. You might say it like this Our ability to love comes from the reality that we are loved. You know, there are people that are sitting in this room right now who grew up in families with a sense of being loved well. And loving others just comes naturally to them. Like you have this very deep well that you live from. And you've been poured into throughout your life. And people can just see it. And they wonder, like, what, what is it about that person? How do they love people so well? And that's true for some people in this room. But for many other people in this room, that's not what they remember. Their family of origin was love deficient. And loving others doesn't come as naturally to them. But here's some really good news. Is that God fills that gap. Whatever our earthly relationships lack, there is one who loves you perfectly and unconditionally, giving us the ability to love others supernaturally just as he loves us. And even if our life is love deficient, We still get to love out of an abundance, out of a surplus, this supernatural surplus that comes only from God himself. Our ability to love comes from the reality that we are, in fact, loved. Now, I know some of you are wondering when we're going to talk about Christmas. So look down at verse 9. And his love is perfected in us. Now sometimes God's love can seem abstract to us. Or just, it's an idea. We know, we, we hear people say, well, God loves you. and Yeah, we know that to be true. It's just this abstract idea. But the coming of Christ assures us that his love will never just be abstract. His love will never just be an idea. It'll never just be a thought, but it took place in action. So the origin of love is in his very being, but the display of his love is in his coming. His his coming is the manifestation, the, the action of his love. And if you look back again at verse 10, where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So listen, verse 10 is clear. No one can say they loved God before God loved them because God is the great initiator. You know, sometimes couples like to argue about who said I love you first. So if, let's just solve this right now. If you're married um, and you said it first, raise your hand, raise it really high. Is anyone like both are raising the hand? I I can't really tell out there. But listen, there is such a thing as a good argument. And that is a good argument to get into. But in our relationship with God, there is no question who made the first move. God loved us first. He was the initiator. And if you look at verse 11, it says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another so remember our ability to love comes from the reality that we are loved and i think about you know my kids my kids love the same sport teams that i do and that is not in their best interest now, i never told them they had to i never threatened to withhold food shelter or clothing but why do they well because their father does and trust me there is no other reason And so my passion became their passion, and sometimes it's scary what I'm passing down to them. But when when you and I know the Father, we start to resemble the Father. We start to love what the Father loves. We start to be passionate about what the Father is passionate about. His passion becomes our passion. You see, claiming to know God while failing to love makes the claim false. False. It's just as false as claiming to know God who is light while still living in darkness. And if you look down again at at, at verse 12, it says this, this statement. It says, he says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does it mean that his love is perfected in us? Well, John Stott says it this way. He says, God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us or among us in the Christian fellowship. You see, the final destination of his love is never just us. It never reaches a dead end. It never reaches a cul-de-sac. If his love moves towards us, we don't receive it so we can contain it. We receive it to give it. And that's the point of why he loves us. Now, sometimes we refuse to do acts of love until we have feelings of love, don't we? Many times we just, we say, well, I don't, I I don't want to do an act of love for that person because I don't really, I don't really feel that towards them. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I don't want to do something that doesn't really match where my heart is. That'd be a hypocritical thing to do, right? I can't do that. Well, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. At times, we wait for the feelings before we act. We say, I don't want to be a hypocrite, but when you do acts of love, something in you softens toward that person. And then you see them soften to you. And then suddenly you find yourself having some of those feelings or emotions. You see, today we can't see God in bodily form here on Earth, but because the Holy Spirit indwells within us, God can be seen through our love for one another. So the love that we have with ourselves and the body of Christ, towards one another, is what the world gets to peer in and look at. And sometimes the picture's not all that pretty, right? But that's what they're going to get to look at. And this this is a way in which God can be seen is through our love for one another. And so look with me down at verse 17. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So by this, what he's talking about is, he's referring back to verses 13 through 16, we skip some of those verses, where John says, if God abides in us, and we in him, then God's love is perfected with us, and so perfected does not mean flawless, but it means mature or growing. So as we grow in love, we no longer live in fear of judgment, but our confidence begins to grow. Now, this doesn't, mean, this doesn't mean arrogance, but this is a humble confidence that drives out fear. And we no longer fear judgment from God because we have his perfect love given to us. So fear cannot coexist with love, and we don't fear punishment because Jesus took it for us already. He took the punishment for us already, so we don't have to fear judgment ultimately. One commentary I read said this, Christians base their confidence on the day of judgment on the fact that God's love and justice will unite to make them like him. So God's love and justice come together, they meet, and they will not unite to make us when, when God looks at us, it's like he's seeing perfection, because the, the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us, if you're a believer. Now, what does this mean when it says, because as he is, so also are we in this world? Well, it's referring to even though we struggle with sin, we are seen as completely righteous before God, and this is why we can stand before God with confidence. And then finally, look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, sometimes Christians, were known as people who just avoid bad things. We just don't do certain things. And, and, and the world sees us that way, and sometimes we see ourselves that way, but that's all just fear-based stuff. You, you know, what should set us apart is not that we fear, but that we love. There is something that we should be known for in, in the positive direction, not just avoiding the negative things and, and, and the sins as we describe them. And if we love God, then it makes sense that we love people that God created, If we love God, then it would make sense that we would love people that are made in God's image. And and this love that drives out fear is also the same love that drives out hatred. And if you think about hatred, especially as it relates to our culture, even right now, with even like Christians and Christian groups and Christians and non-Christians and so on, I mean, hatred is really just a certain kind of fear, if you think about it. Hatred is just kind of fear dressed up a little bit differently. There's really a fear that's often behind the hatred. And so this love drives out fear. It also drives out hatred. And how can we say we love God who we cannot see while hating our brother who we can see? John Calvin wrote, It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. So if we don't love our brothers and sisters who are God's visible representatives, then how can we say we love God who is invisible to us? You see, it's easy to claim to love God when that love doesn't cost us anything more than just weekly church attendance, right? But the real test for loving God is how we treat the people that are right in front of us. So, now if it's true that our ability to love comes from the reality that we are loved, I want to ask you a question. Do you know how loved you are? I don't want you to miss the big picture. Do you know how loved you are? When in your life have you realized the love that God has for you? One of the greatest missionaries in history is a guy named Hudson Taylor. He was born in May May 21st, 1832 in Barnsley, England. Before his birth, his parents dedicated him to mission work in China. They didn't tell him that until after he went to China to do mission work But in the early years he struggled spiritually and his mom was praying fervently for him to come to know Christ in in the true sense of the word. Around age 15 he goes and works at a bank and saw people mocking the faith and he kind of started to join in and he got involved in materialism and just living for himself, living for the world. And then finally through the many prayers of his mother and his family and his sister, he finally surrenders his life to Christ, ends up spending 51 years over in China, founded the China Inland Mission, now known, it's known as OMF. Hundreds of missionaries followed him to China. Thousands from China came to Christ. And he was known as one of the great Christian missionaries. But before all of this, before the, the day he left, the day came when he would set sail for China, and he knew that he would never see his mother again. And he writes these words about that experience. My beloved, now sainted mother had come over to Liverpool to see me off. Never shall I forget that day or how she went with me into the cabin that was to be my home for nearly six long months. With a mother's loving hand, she smoothed the little bed. She sat by my side and joined in the last hymn, We Should Sing Together Before parting we knelt down and she prayed the last mother's prayer i was to hear before leaving for china then notice was given that we must separate and we had to say goodbye never expecting to meet on earth again and for my sake she restrained her feeling her feelings as much as possible we parted and she went ashore giving me her blessing And I stood alone on that deck, and she followed the ship as we moved toward the dock gates. As we passed through the gates and the separation really commenced, never shall I forget the cry of anguish wrung from that mother's heart. It went through me like a knife. I never knew so fully until then what God so loved the world meant. And I'm quite sure my precious mother learned more of the love of God for the perishing in that one hour than in all her life before. When have you known the love of the Father like that? Maybe for you, everything in your life has just been fear-based. You've been living your life with Jesus out of fear. Just fear of punishment, fear of judgment. Maybe for you, Jesus has felt distant. You know him as Lord, as a king, or as a judge, but you don't know him as Father. 1 John 3 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You see, here's the really good news is that Jesus doesn't just want our good behavior or righteousness, because apart from Christ, those are filthy rags anyway. But he wants a relationship, just like a father has with a son or a daughter. And because his love drives out fear, you and I, we are free to draw near, even in our sin. Our worst sin cannot outweigh his love for us. So will you put your faith and trust in him today let's pray together God we thank you for being a God who is love and that's not just something that you do but it's something that you are and it flows out of your being it flows out of your character and that was all true before you created us before you created this world that was all true and God, we, we get to be participants in that. As love flows from you to us, it should also flow from us to others and to the world. And God, I pray that we would not be someone who dams that up. We would not be a cul-de-sac or a dead end for your love. And God, I pray that you would move in us and through us Individually, corporately as a people and help us to be the kind of people that reflect the kind of love that you have for us. And I pray, God, that if anyone in this room does not yet know you in this way, that they would come to know you and cry out to you in faith and in repentance and surrender their life to you today, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.